Braver Angels presents Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. April Lawson is a singular figure in Braver Angels and in the larger civic renewal movement. A Braver Angels director, managing director of debates and discourse, it is April Lawson who has built up the largest and most impactful program that Braver Angels offers, our Braver Angels debates program, popular on college campuses throughout America, but also in local communities. This contribution to our work has made it possible for us to leverage conflict in a way that brings people together in a deeper and more intense way. And the very fact that you can do that in the work of creating understanding and trust between people is itself something that April has contributed as an intellectual in this space in a way that's totally unique to her. Nobody else has really seized upon the idea that through our conflicts, we become stronger together in this work, except for April. And yet for all of that, most people who follow the work of Braver Angels from outside of our community do not realize what a pivotal figure she has been to our organization, to our community, and to the larger movement that we are building together. So in today's episode of Uniting America, I wanted to shine a light on April's work, on her work in the context of Braver Angels, her thoughts on conservatism, feminism, her larger social and political worldview, because as we build this movement together, it is clear to me that her leadership at Braver Angels and beyond is going to be a part of whatever transformation our labors together might inspire in the United States of America. And so now I bring you my colleague and friend, April Lawson. April Lawson, welcome to Uniting America. Thanks so much, John. It's great to be here. It is. <laughs> it is. Like, actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> welcome to welcome to the studio. Welcome to our, you know, our humble podcast boat. Yes. Right? Yes. No, it's mm-hmm. not so humble in my view. Well, but. you know, you got you got the grand tour. You got to see where where the magic happens. Yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, it's very here, magical. Yes, indeed. And so here we are, uh, close colleagues uh, mm-hmm. and uh, friends who have recorded many a podcast together, but never in person. Yeah, yes, yes, somehow. <laughs> so, uh-huh. you know, now, you know, we've played host to some extraordinary guests on Uniting America. And, yeah, I mean, we've had folks from Sam Harris, uh, Kim Iverson, and Tavis Smiley, and, you know, there are going to be going to be many others. Uh, but, you know, in terms of like scheduling difficulties, I'd say you are at the top of the <laughs> oh, list. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. People, people have a hard time uh, getting a hold of. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, birthday like this. Public shaming—is that what this podcast interview is going to be about? I, you know, that's, you know? How, that's how we unite America. I, absolutely, yes. um, <laughs> we can all feel shame. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> I mean, that is the approach that some some would take. Yeah. I think, you know. yes, indeed. And that actually might be relevant to a little bit of what we talk about here, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so so folks will have heard in my pre-recorded sort of introduction, you know, more of an in-depth kind of overview of, you know, some of your you know, some some aspects of your, your resume and so forth. But I but I do want to give you the opportunity to say a bit uh, about sort of, you know, kind of your your professional background, how you come into this work. And, and just as an additional sort of layer of context, the reason this episode is so important is because this podcast, this show, you know, it exists to give some small additional sort of voice and megaphone to a movement that is rising in America mm-hmm. that really seeks to fundamentally sort of transform the way in which we fail, of course, to recognize the deep human dignity mm-hmm. that lives in the heart of our fellow Americans across the spectrum of politics and identity, mm-hmm. right? And within that, uh, to shine a light um, on people who are leading this movement uh, from across that very same spectrum. And so within the movement, broadly speaking, but within the work of Braver Angels in particular, in particular, um, there has there has been, I think it's fair to say, no more original or impactful both voice uh, uh, thinker and uh, in addition to that, um, methodological innovator, if you will, when it comes to creating containers, right, for discourses rooted in in deep empathy, but also uh, deep honesty, Mm -hmm. right? We'll we'll Mm -hmm. get to some of that. Um, Then April Lawson, then then yourself, 
And so, you know, um, I want to say that to set the stage, Uh, we're going to get into your work within Braver Angels, your the particular perspectives you bring to this movement. But first, um, tell us a little bit just on the high end about who you were professionally sort of prior to the work of of, of Braver Angels that, that led you up to the point and place where you are now. Absolutely. Well, mm-hmm. thank you so much for those words. You're and mm-hmm. I, uh, I hope I can live up to them. <laughs> um, yeah, I so professionally. So I graduated from Yale in 2019. I had studied anthropology and I had fallen in love with political philosophy. Um, And there's more to that story, but leaving that aside for the moment, I moved to Washington, D.C. because I thought that that's where you do political philosophy. (laughs) And the turn, it turns out that that's like kind of true, (laughs) but also kind of not. Um, Mostly there's a lot of political and not as much philosophy in my experience, but there was one. um, So I started looking around for somebody to work for Mm -hmm. and there was one and I I was looking for someone. I assumed it would be some senator or some political appointee, some someone who inspired me. And I found that there was only one voice who I really was like, Mm -hmm. oh, that person is speaking for the things that I care about. Mm -hmm. And that was David Brooks Mm -hmm. of The New York Times. Right. So I uh, went to a lunch that he was at and I gave, I got him to give me his email address <laughs> and, um, I emailed him and he didn't write back. Sure. Um, and so then I went back the next year and went to the lunch again. Mm. And this time I gave him a letter and I emailed him some more and he didn't write back. Um, <laughs> and in the meantime, this will come back in a few minutes, okay. but, um, in the meantime, I, so I have always been interested in, um, translating between cultures and in helping people uh, encounter one another really deeply, both, um, across and through their cultures. And so I looked for jobs that had something to do with that. Um, and so I actually first went back to New Haven, Connecticut, worked for the mayor there. And it was actually one of my favorite jobs. My job was to get the people in that city who were unlikely to participate in the census, which is Mm -hmm. the course, of course, the source of a lot of federal funding, um, to do so. So I had to figure out who was trusted in the African-American community, in the Latino community, in the uh, undocumented Irish immigrant community. Mm, Unexpected, but that's a thing in New Haven. Anyway, so I did that. And then I um, unexpectedly got an opportunity to work in the Treasury Department uh, Mm. for the the guy who was then the number two person there. And um, from there, I shifted to a political campaign. And then that ended with the election. And then... um, and then, so several things in quick succession. Mm-hmm. And then I, um, again, the through line here is is cultural translation. Um, I went to the intelligence community for a couple right. of years. Um, and then uh, after that, I, um, you know, I, I took a couple months off, spent some time in China. I was, um, what I felt like I needed to realize is that uh, Yale and DC have sort of a similar underlying moral logic, which is mm. rise, become a leader in whatever doesn't, most of the rest doesn't matter. Just rise wherever you are. Ambition I, is core to the ethos. Yes. Oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> Please. <laughs> like, yes. I guess that won't surprise anyone. No. Mm-hmm. And so I, but I realized that like, that's actually not, those are not my values. I, and I, I'm not sure I've ever said this in public before. <laughs> He'll probably get mad at me, but I, that made me go back to David Brooks and be like, <laughs> oh, I just want to do something small and humble. And um, meanwhile, for David Brooks at the New York Times. I mean, it doesn't sound too small and humble, though, for a lot of people. It, so. Exactly. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. It's funny because I, I was just going to go be his assistant. And I thought that that was like, you know. I was leading a team and I was going to go back to that, but I take it. This is because he didn't answer your emails and therefore you needed to become the person who answered <laughs> emails for him. Basically. Right? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's more or less it. No, yeah. I mean, I, I, at one point, I think I, at one point sent him literally eight emails, like one yeah. a week for eight weeks saying yeah. like, I'd really love to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it. to my shock, he wrote back to me and then I got to know his assistant and then she blah, blah, blah. My joke is that I stalked him, but eventually, <laughs> eventually he gave me a job. Yeah. And that yeah. was really an important job for me um, because it told me that there is a place for complex and nuanced thought and, and for being who you actually are in mm-hmm. American life. Um right. Plus, he's just a deeply good person who I learned a lot from. Mm, indeed. Um, and then I uh, co-founded the 
Weave the Social Fabric Project, which is um, w- with David, the uh, the program we ran at the Aspen Institute. Mm-hmm. And then I, um, after that, started working for Braver Angels. And I go. can say more about that. But yes. Yeah. yeah. So we will get into your your Braver Angels story, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, there is um, there's there's a lot to unearth uh, in that conversation. Prior to getting to to that part of our, our focus here today, um, I do want to sort of go into some of the deeper parts of your experiential uh, biography mm. here. Um, so many of us come to the work of civic bridge building, this, this, this goodwill, unity, bridging movement that is coalescing people, again, from across the spectrum of identities and points of view in American society. So many of us come to this movement with the story Sometimes it's a story that might be like a, a revelation, some some flash of controversy wakes some of us some of us up to the idea that our inability to treat each other as human beings in politics have consequences. I think others of us come to this work after having experienced perhaps long arcs in which our relationships have been impacted by our differences uh, in perspective. Um, and experience, uh, perhaps as a result of some of our own views changing over time, which is what happens with human beings who live and grow so much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so tell us about sort of where you come from uh, originally, and 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 weave weave that in if it's easy enough for you to do so, sort of into the path that ultimately led you to the passion that drives you now. Mm. Yeah, well, that's a big question. It is. I specialize. Um, in yes, you do. <laughs> that's a true statement. I grew up in Kansas, yeah. and because I'm a conservative now, most people assume that oh yeah, just one of those people who grew up conservative stayed that way. Mm-hmm. No big deal. Sure. But that's actually not my story. Um, I started off. So my parents are uh, brilliant, um, now retired economics professors mm-hmm. who are also deeply uh, liberal. I actually think the better word is leftist, although I don't know if they would um, Mm -hmm. identify that way or whatever the term is these days. Mm -hmm. Um, But they shaped me deeply with a sense that uh, that it's important to ask questions. And and also we didn't fit Mm. where we were um, because we were in a pretty evangelical part of Kansas and Mm. uh, we were the only non-religious people that we knew. And in a place where the first question is often, oh, it's great to meet you. Where do you go to church? Mm-hmm. Um, right. it just didn't, it didn't work super well for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, uh, got very used to being in one moral and political climate inside the house and then walking out and having to speak a completely different language outside the house. Sure. Then a funny thing happened, which is that I went to, to Yale, like I said, and so I did debate in high school and that was like a really great thing for me because again, it was a place where people could play with ideas. Mm-hmm. So I went to find the debating groups at Yale. Mm. And there was something called the Yale Political Union, which is this group that uh, is a debating society that has several different sort of sub-societies in it that have different political slants, ideological Mm. identities. And I was looking for the Liberal Party and Yale has a residential college called Branford that Mm. has a common room, but it also has something called the Branford Trumbull Room. And I got these mixed up. And so (laughs) I wandered in to uh, the Tory party, which had everybody was in bow ties and they were drinking port. But I didn't really know that that wasn't just how liberals did things. And so I um, I stayed for a minute and I heard this speech uh, on the floor of the Tory party that was about patriotism. Mm. And it was about um, living for things that are beyond you and that are worth more than life itself. Mm. And I was just transfixed. And then um, I stayed for a little longer and I heard a very different speech about sacrificial love from a man I uh, later came to deeply respect as a just one of the most um, thoughtful and good Christians I'd ever met. And mm. uh, he spoke to the same um, living for things that are beyond you. Mm. And I felt like I had found people who spoke the language that my heart spoke, but I didn't know that they existed. I didn't know anybody else like thought that way, believed that way. So I then began reading, um, all kinds of, uh, you know, Edmund Burke and, uh, GK Chesterton and Russell Kirk and all these people. And, um, 
lo and behold, I was a conservative and <laughs> I had to go home and tell my parents that. Uh, and, 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 and just to be clear, sort of yeah. a, a conservative of, I guess, a somewhat different f- flavor because certainly, right. so what you've discovered at Yale, um, by the way, it's, it's interesting. You explained the process by which you sort of discovered your political identity. At, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, at Hogwarts, they just have a sorting. <laughs> We just, you put that would it be on. so much simpler, right? Right, yeah. It wouldn't be nice if you put the hat on and it can uh-huh. say, Tory, you know, as, <laughs> you know, as opposed to Gryffindor or yes. whatnot. Yes, So, you know, you had this particular pathway and this conservatism that you discovered. It's not the, the, the liberalism or leftism of your parents, but it's not quite the evangelical conservatism exactly. of your upbringing. Too. Exactly. Okay. Well, maybe as we go in the conversation, mm-hmm. we can talk a little bit about the differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess the salient point here is that you experienced this conversion, yeah. essentially, in your yeah. politics and worldview. Mm-hmm. Then, you, uh, then you had to tell your parents about it. Is that yeah. where we're going? Okay. That's where we're going. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, right. you know, I'm not going to go into it a lot, sure, sure. but that uh, didn't go very well. Mm. You know, the stereotype is that the parents are conservative and the kid becomes liberal, but mm-hmm. it turns out that it doesn't go real well the other way either. And <laughs> yeah, uh, I sent my, I sent my liberal daughter to college and she came back to conservative, Yale, like to the to East Yale. coast out right. of, you know, the middle of nowhere. <laughs> right. And yes, you are flipping the stereotype. I, you know, the story a little bit. <laughs> it's okay. an accident, but yes. Got um, but yeah, that didn't go super well. And I, we kept tr- the, the thing that I will say, uh, that is a deep, um, thing I believe in is that we kept trying to communicate, uh, but I would say it took 10 years maybe okay. for us to be kind of okay with that, mm-hmm. um, with each other, given all that. Right. Um, and there was a religious conversion as part of this too. And like, mm-hmm. it was just, um, I am really familiar with the fact that this can divide families and right. not, not, a, uh, <laughs> not in a little way in mm-hmm. like a, am I still your daughter? Like mm. kind of way. And right. so I, um, I've been, but I've been really clear the whole time that people on both sides of this divide, right. Have good hearts because when you're a, whether you're a, a, a liberal in Kansas or a conservative at Yale, you just know that there are real people behind that. Mm. Um, and I also would say that the, I came to have little patience with shallow. See, you said a lot of people come into this bridging space, um, thinking that they want to like bring everybody together and make everybody like see how much the same they are. Sure. Uh, and I, um, that is actually part of why I thought I would never ever work in the bridging <laughs> space, which sounds funny, but, yeah. but I actually think that, I guess I would say that, um, I have seen too much, uh, reconciliation, like false false reconciliation that essentially sweeps things under the rug. Mm. And I think that that is one of the worst things you can do uh, when there's real division and real pain and real difference. And I will never believe in that. Mm. Um, What I believe in instead is truth and reconciliation is the phrase that comes to mind for me. But I actually mean both of those words. Mm. That phrase tends to be used in a particular context. But I think that um, you have got to have truth if you're going to have real reconciliation, but that most forces in society seem oriented towards either telling the truth and burn it all down. Doesn't matter what happens after that yeah. or else they're interested in reconciliation. But if a little truth has to go under the rug, mm-hmm. like, Oh, well, right. Um, mm. but I, I, I can't tolerate that. And so I, um, came to respect braver angels partly because they don't do that. So perhaps uh, moving into your Braver Angels story will also open up the opportunities for us to get into this sort of particular, I think, philosophical contributions Mm -hmm. that you've made to the thinking of the space, because you're already sort of hinting at it, sort Mm -hmm. of a unique sort of understanding of the nature of truth and reconciliation, what Mm -hmm. that ought to look like, and also sort of the dangers of genericizing our differences Mm -hmm. so as to emphasize our commonalities, Mm -hmm. right? And so uh, let's let's make our way to those points. But let's but let's begin by picking up the story uh, at, I suppose, at the point at which you you find yourselves, find yourself um, uh, becoming familiar with and then ultimately engaging Mm -hmm. uh, braver angels. Where does that begin? Totally. So Mm -hmm. um, after the 2016 election, uh, David Brooks and I were, uh, I think, both a little like demoralized and chagrined because as the conservatives at the times with Ross Douthat, we were supposed to, (laughs) it was just, um, 
I'll, I'll only speak for myself here because I don't want to speak for them, but I was a little bit mortified to mm-hmm. discover that I and we were so out of touch that we could have missed this. Um, and I also, frankly, was just uh, mortified that my brothers and sisters in America would uh, elect someone with that kind of character. Mm. Um, I'm a I'm a never Trump Republican, as you can tell. Right. But um, the uh, so I then and we started looking for like who's working on this problem. There's a cultural rift here that is profound, right. and it's not something that will go away on its own. And it has the serious chance of tearing apart everything else yeah. with it. And so started looking for organizations working on that. And I um, ran into David Blankenhorn, friend of a friend, introduced us. David Blankenhorn, of course, being president of yes. the president of. President of, at that right. time, a concept, <laughs> not something <laughs> right. that existed. Sure. But yes. Um, and he had been, of course, the, the president of the Institute for American Values. Right. Right. Which is a right. think tank dedicated uh, to the study of family and fatherhood mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and things along these lines. And so, right. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I didn't really know much about him, but mm-hmm. I l- liked what he said. And so I heard that Brave Angels was doing a bus tour and they were going to go around the country doing these workshops summer mm-hmm. of 2017. And so I said, oh, I went back to David Brooks and was like, oh, can I cover that? Um, mm-hmm. And he said, sure. And so I went. And of course, we weren't Braver Angels at the time. Right. Better Angels. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> so I got on that bus with my, you know, my little notepad and um i interviewed people uh, at all the workshops and you know listened to the staff trying to think out like how do we handle this where do we go next that sort of thing uh but something important happened which is that at the end of those workshops there was something in people's faces mm. that i really i really the best word i have for it is joy mm. i know that's an unexpected word people usually expect the word hope and that word was there too but i think it was joy at mm discovering that the people that they had thought they had lost or were their enemies now that they didn't know anymore were actually still their neighbors and their brothers and their sisters and right. their friends. And right. that I was like that, that something there, I want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. And so I was just totally compelled and I, you know, took off my journalist hat and, uh, kept bothering David Blankenhorn and eventually joined the board. And, right. um, then in 2018 was at a meeting where David was saying, uh, Blankenhorn now, not Brooks was saying, um, you know, I think that, uh, we need better ways to reach reds our parlance for conservatives, of course, uh-huh. and youth college students. Um, what if we were to try some form of debate? And I said, oh my gosh, like, I know about that. Like, <laughs> maybe this is something I can help with. Right, because this takes us back to your experience in Yale. Exactly. Yeah. So I debated in high school and then in the Yale Political Union. And at, in the political union, I learned the form of debate that I have based uh, Brave Angels debate on, which um, the most important thing about it is that you say what you actually believe mm. and people actually listen. And um, you don't shrink from conflict, but you do, um, you follow parliamentary procedure and it's very fair and um you answer questions and anyone in the room can speak and it's so it's it's at once egalitarian um and liberating um for people to speak but also um brave like you don't you you go ahead and say the things uh mm-hmm. in in an orderly but like authentic fashion mm-hmm. and so i said you know hey david um, D blank, as I call him, um, <laughs> in retaliation for him calling David Lap D Lap. We um, suffer from an excess of Davids in our, we in our do. work in general. They are so. everywhere. <laughs> you should. Oh my gosh, my life. I yeah. <laughs> I've worked for two David Bs, so yeah. I can't even. You I can't, can't even, even just use. You can't them. even do that. No. Yeah. It's, um, it's it's a problem. Yeah. Right. Uh, so anyway, the I said, hey, I think I know something that could help here, and he said, oh okay. And then a couple months later, he called me and said, we're going to East Tennessee State. And I said, what? And he said, we're going to use Tennessee State. We're going to run a debate there. There are two young young men there, freshmen, I think, who have started a civic week and mm-hmm. I want you to run a debate for them. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, OK. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever taught debate. And it was uh, but it just went so well. And it was so clear from that moment that like. It was a guns debate um, shortly three weeks after the Parkland shooting. Mm-hmm. And it was East Tennessee. So, and the topic was, should students be allowed to carry guns on campus? So very personal. Um, 
And it was just very powerful because people said all kinds of like um, things that related to their own lives. I don't feel safe on campus because if there were an incident, the police would take five minutes to get here and that would be it. I need to be armed. Professor saying I'm scared to if I give a kid a bad grade, what if he's carrying? Right. Um, and then our next debate was at American University. I think it was our next one on healthcare, And it was similarly powerful. Mm. It uh, the resolution there was um, resolved healthcare as a human right. And I will never forget the young woman who stood up and said healthcare is not just a right for people who can afford it. Mm. And she said afterwards that she was in no way planning on speaking. This is one of the things, I'm sorry, I could go on about no, this. No, please, please do. Please but do. Um, yeah. about Brave Angel's debate is mm-hmm. that I love watching people who come into the room sure that they're not going to speak. They think they're just going to, you know, sit back and listen and <laughs> right. chill. Sure. Um, and then you watch them and something begins to bubble, bubble up in them. And suddenly there's something they really need to say. Mm. And so they raise their hands and they stand up. And then like this woman, she... Oh, it was so powerful because she told a story of how she herself would uh, would not be here today were it not for health insurance. Mm. And there were tears uh, and the whole room was just you could hear a pin drop. Mm. Um, and then what was amazing was the next person who came up and gave a speech also told a personal story. He said, you know, I have a hearing loss. And if it were 100 years ago. Everybody would know because I need to wear a giant hearing aid. Um, But because of the free market, again, he was opposed to Mm. um, government provided health care. He said, I can everybody thinks I I, this doesn't have to define my life because I have a little tiny hearing aid nobody knows about. Mm. And then there are kids who like um, my favorite one of my favorites, the first young young man who got up and said he was going to speech, I think said he was like sweating buckets and like, you know, they're just, <laughs> sure. they're fun, but you see them blossom mm. and you see them, uh, show up in a way right. that you never would before or never that they often never have before, right. um, in front of their peers. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I can certainly personally testify to the, to the power, uh, of the model that you've innovated and that has become, you know, I think really our most popular program offering, if I'm not Mistaken. I mean, it's certainly on college campuses, the thing that we've sort of led with, but, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, dozens and dozens of campuses uh, across America to say nothing of all of the local communities in mm-hmm. which uh, this program is deployed. And so, of course, uh, Professor Bill Doherty, a Braver Angels co-founder, uh, is the architect of our original family, bear, family therapy-based uh, workshops, a wide suite of activities aimed at cultivating empathy and relational and communicative techniques. Uh, but your unique contribution through the Braver Angels debate program has been something that has sort of taken the work of depolarization in a direction. I'm not sure any other organization or entity had ever thought to do so, in part because this idea of leveraging conflict as a means of relationship building it would almost seem antithetical to what people think that sort of civic bridge building work is exactly is supposed to be mm-hmm. supposed to be about. So can you just say something briefly about why some of what you've said already sort of anticipates this, but what made you think that was a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, it is right. so counterintuitive. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many times I say, oh, I work for, I, you know, I try to, I work to bridge divides and people say, oh, how do you do that? Debate. <laughs> what? Debate right. tears us apart. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. But the thing is that um, uh, conflict is not optional. We, yeah. because we have so much difference and because we have very good reasons to disagree about things mm-hmm. and we have different uh, experiences, different value systems, different, I mean, there's all kinds of difference. And I think that, um, I hope my blue colleagues will forgive me if mm-hmm. I say that it sometimes is a blue assumption mm-hmm. to say that, well, we just need to recognize that we're all humans, we're all people, and we can just sit in a circle. I don't mean to caricature. I actually think that helping people see that we're all uh in some deep ways, the same is very important sure. part of this work. Although a lot of social justice leaning uh, or interested progressives might be very quick to go the other direction. Right. Uh, right. Which is yeah. actually interesting, too, because sure. I I I have a real heart for very passionate people. Right. So I like activists a lot. Yeah. Even though we, I, we don't necessarily. Sure. We can circle back on, on, <laughs> yeah. on the question um, of activist culture, because I know that you have a fair amount to, to say do. about social justice. And, Maybe we can have some space for it. Maybe. But, but in any event, so, right. So, but, but, so you find yourself, of course, making this counterintuitive case. Right. And so conflict is not avoidable. Right. The only question, the only thing we get to decide is how are we going to deal with it? Are mm-hmm. we going to navigate it well? 
Yeah. Or are we going to sort of try to avoid it and then bumble our way through it? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I also just think that a thing that I learned in my family and at Yale, um, uh, but really in my family first, is that uh, it is possible to have conflict in a way that builds relationship. Mm-hmm. People think of conflict as something that is destructive, but right. it does not have to be. Mm. It can be a deep form of encounter where mm. you really see another person and mm. where they, this is going to sound funny, but it feels like something of their spirit gets added to yours mm. because you, uh, you actually hear them and you hear something that is really other and really different. Mm. And it makes you deeper, wiser, and it very much can, can create intimacy. And, mm. you know, people in uh, every relationship has some of this, right? Mm. Um, right. You don't love uh, the people that you love because they're the same as you. Mm. You love them for the exact particular thing that they are, mm. which sometimes, so like one of the examples I, I often use is my mother who, again, I'm a Birkin conservative. She's mm. a, um, a, a economic justice person. Right. And one of the things that I love most about her is she will never forget about working people. Mm. about people who are spending every day working two jobs, right. trying to make ends meet, trying to put their kids through schooling. And, uh, and it's very easy for people in elite worlds to just be like, oh yeah, the working class, yeah, they're a political commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, but she will never forget who they are and how hard they work. Mm. And I love that about her. And it's, it's a thing that I could do with more of. Um, mm. And so I think it's very possible to, uh, to engage conflict in a way that makes you love people. Mm, right. <laughs> and, um, and I guess the, the final thing I'd say on the subject is that, again, this is a little intense, but I don't think bridging efforts will ever get anywhere if we don't do some of this because too many people are too alienated and they can smell it. If you're just trying to get them to agree with people or to say, Oh yeah, we're all the same. Um, there's too much pain often and too much, um, anger, uh, too much alienation for people to want to be part of something like that. Mm. Um, and I, I'll be honest, I have felt this at times too. Um, mm. and, uh, so I think that that's why truth has to come before reconciliation and you've got to go through the conflict first. Mm. Indeed. Well, I see, um, though you were making a point about, uh, differences, uh, I do, I do see plenty of your mother in you insofar as, thank you. Well, indeed. And in particular here, the fact that uh, you were never content, uh, in my observation of you, uh, to allow people who should be brought within the, the familial circle uh, of, of uh, our civic understanding mm-hmm. to remain alienated no. uh, from that project. And that's mm-hmm. very clearly manifest mm-hmm. in the work that you've done in Braver Angels, but also the voice that you've been and the presence that you have held Thank you. in Braver Angels. And that that takes me to um, our experience uh, with the with the 2020 election, mm-hmm. now, the period of time uh, leading leading up to it, the election itself. But then, of course, the, the conflict and the controversy mm-hmm. uh, surrounding the, the claims of voter fraud mm-hmm. that that were made, you know, ultimately culminating in, in January 6, mm-hmm. a moment that really was precisely the thing. That that we were working so hard at Braver Angels, you know, to 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 avoid. I mean, yeah. you know, b- believing and and having seen, you know, there's the summer of 2020, and of course, you know, the aftermath of George Floyd, so many things, and then to have I call it the long year of 2020 because it, it clearly <laughs> lasted at least a week, it you sure know, did. past the end, uh-huh. <laughs> past the end of that calendar year. But to have it culminate in January 6 in a moment where so many Americans thought to themselves that I am done. Mm-hmm. these people on 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 the other yes. side right and and yet i feel that our ability to maintain the family of our larger community mm-hmm. at braver angels mm-hmm. um rested so much on the graceful example that you yourself sort of set forth in some of the key programs and events that we held uh, after that and you know many other ways as well um so i'm wondering if you can take us back a little bit to 2020, the aftermath of January 6th, mm-hmm. just recount for us a little bit, or maybe we can recount together sort of, you know, what, what the journey was, what your particular experience was, mm. and what were some of the key things that we did that allowed us to 
if not hold all of America together, at least hold our, our piece of America mm-hmm. together uh, mm-hmm. within the community of Braver Angels? Mm. Mm. It's a really good question. It was a frightening year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It was a year when it was hard to spend any time not working because it was <laughs> so clear yeah. that uh, it wasn't real clear. It was so clear that there was no certainty that we were all going to make it through this. Right. And we have, um, at least in some fashion. But I remember leading up to the 2020 election, wondering if we should train nonviolent protesters to break up riots in the streets, like mm-hmm. literally trying to figure out, like, how do we serve our country here? And I think that the one of the ways that we found to serve was by creating spaces for people to uh, first in the, the night after the election the night of the election and the night after actually to just sit with where we were um, and not try to make it all make sense, not try to make everybody feel the same way, but just be able to be together because there's a a way in which that's actually, that's actually the act, the, Mm -hmm. the essential nature of it is just, can you be together? Yeah. And uh, so right after the election, it was that. uh, And then, Oh my goodness. In moments like that, it's a tall order. Mm -hmm. It is a tall order. It is a tall order. And it's a tall order for the participants. Like we do what we can to create that space. And and I'll, I'm happy to speak to that, but it's a tall order for the people who show up to be able to say, I'm going to sit in this room. Mm -hmm. And and, and one little bit of the history that I'll sort of fill in here too, was that, you know, we created these spaces for people to come together uh, virtually, you know, on, on election night and, and part of something, you know, we were talking about, uh, this, this, this earlier, but, you know, part of what we did was, you know, we sort of had these, these zoom spaces, uh, where we had sort of events where people could commune with each other for short periods of time, uh, led by people of different religious traditions mm-hmm. and some none, uh, of no particular religious tradition, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where people were able to co- sort of come into these shared spaces and really kind of tap into even their spiritual resources mm-hmm. as a means mm-hmm. of reestablishing this connection you know this this bond that we have as brothers and sisters in America that ought to transcend our political differences mm-hmm. but that is very difficult to sustain without that kind of framework mm-hmm. of, of grace and, and mm-hmm. humility if you will which you know I, I think we try to cultivate at braver angels mm-hmm. and following that uh you know we had a couple of programs that sort of ran simultaneously one was uh, called with malice towards none and it was sort of uh, on the ground in physical community uh, programs held by by ministries and, and community level organizations, civic groups that basically were just bringing people together to do the simple thing that you mentioned, just, you know, proving that we can share space together, you know, in the aftermath of that particularly bitter uh, election. There was more to it than that, but, you know, it's rooted in just that, mm-hmm. that, uh, that goal. And then we had something called Hold America Together, which, which really was an attempt to sort of begin to move towards what you just identified was, you know, this incredibly sort of, you know, ambitious thing to say, okay, do we have a response to physical violence? If mm-hmm. things start to erupt in violence in American streets, can we bring people together? Can we deploy people in local communities, Brave Angels members and volunteers who can come together to try and hold peaceful space mm-hmm. in the midst of political violence? And we were prepared to sort of move on that and weeks passed, the controversies mounted, but it seemed that coming all the way up to the day of the inauguration, that maybe we had escaped what we thought was the real likelihood of violence in the streets in America. And then January 6th came to pass. So So what happened to us then? Oh my goodness. Shock to the system in America. And we knew that we had to again, just provide a space. Um, and the, the question was then what is done with that space? Mm -hmm. Who speaks? What do they say? And, um, for some reason I was (laughs) given the task of, uh, leading that, moderating that space. And in particular with, and this was a a virtual, it was a virtual. virtual Yeah. It's actually our, um, most well-attended event ever. I think we had 7,000 people sign up and we'll, we'll include a link to, to that for people who want to watch. The yeah. Whole yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, <sighs> I have had very few periods as stressful as the 48 hours before that, because I realized that somehow 
I needed to figure out how to create a space that people who felt uh, that those protesters um, had come close to achieving their goal, but unfortunately had been snatched away from them. And people who thought that our country was on the verge of collapse and those people ought to be disowned. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, people who, um, some friends of mine who are uh, people of color who saw the violent overtones in that as being relevant to their own personal safety and Mm -hmm. all the rest of that. And so uh, I think the, the footage itself is probably the best expression of it. But what I remember is just needing to give all those people a place in the room. And so what I did was literally to the way to set the scene was literally to not, not name as in use their names, but name people in the room say, you know, there's a person here who was at the protests uh, a couple nights ago who still has bruises. There's a person here who um, is so angry that he doesn't really want me to tell you that um, he feels afraid mm. um, for his own safety. Uh, person of color. There's a person here who feels like he's been or she's been um, personally like violated by in a sacred area uh that being the you know the capitol building there's a person here who um doesn't understand how the party of conservatism has left them like they're they're just all these people in the room and it's it's uh there's a way in which the thing that we need to do is create a very large space Mm. that's very quiet so that everybody can settle in and be there. And then you can begin to, to go in, right. And to say, what was this about for you? What did this mean for you? And how do we live with each other mm. given that this has happened? Right. Um, so I can say more about that, but the, uh, I would mention also that this conflict didn't actually start there. Mm. Um, there was a, one of the, uh, debates that I have found most powerful. Um, there's one, before all this and one after it. Um, and the one before was, so it's 2020, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the debates that I have found most powerful in my time leading this work uh, was shortly after George Floyd's murder. And it was, I don't remember the exact topic. It was something like America as an inherently racist nation or something. Right. Um, and uh, I just remember or maybe it was about the police because I remember a social worker saying, I don't want to be sent in to this. And I remember other, perhaps we marketed that as a debate over defunding. That's not right. Defund, defund the, the police. police. That's what it was. Right. Yeah. Thank yes. you. Good memory. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the intensity that came out on, on all sides of that, um, mm-hmm. both sides, but really all the sides. Yeah. And Derek Steele, the Social Justice Learning yeah. Institute, was involved in that. Joy, mm-hmm. da- I'm trying to think; it's been a while. But Melina was too. Uh, Melina Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's right from Deep Rooted Entertainment here in here in Los Angeles. A number of remarkable people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just remember at the end of it. Um, so we have a, a debrief process at the end of our debates, right. which is important because debates are inherently divisive, and you need to give people a chance to come back together in a way at the end of it. And so there's always a debrief where we ask people to speak to what did you learn and what did you enjoy? Mm -hmm. And I just remember this, this woman uh, who was speaking, she was off camera and it was because um, she was pretty choked up and she just said, this is really hard. It's really good, but it's really hard. Mm -hmm. And I just, um, that was before the election. That was before Mm -hmm. January 6th. so just giving people a chance to like say what they needed to, mm. but then on the other side, so <laughs> I think the most controversial event Brave Angels has ever run mm. was our debate um, short. That was mm, early March of that year of 2021 after January 6th. Right. That mm. was on voter fraud. Mm. It was essentially debating whether the election was stolen. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you probably remember it because um, I, I remember it. I remember yes. it very, very well. And you know, yeah. I had a bit of a role uh, myself in the internal conversations yes. um, over this. I mean, I think that um, one of the things that I, I remember talking to David Blankenhorn about early in that year was just the fact that 
you know, uh, Rave or Angels, regardless of what my opinion or your opinion or David or anybody else's opinion might be with respect to the merit or lack thereof of the voter fraud claim, um, you know, uh, polls at the time indicated that 70% or so of Republicans felt that the election either was or very likely may have been stolen by Mm -hmm. fraud and that, you know, if we were going to keep our integrity as an organization, you know, committed to bringing everyone Mm -hmm. to the table for the purposes of an of a larger reconciliation, we had to talk about the things that people cared about. That mm-hmm. certainly included that issue. And yet mm-hmm. there are so many people in America at the time, and I think even still, uh, who were saying this is not an issue that any legitimate platform should touch. That's right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And it was <laughs> it was so clear. Um, it, and, and so many organizations that I, uh, bridging or otherwise, um, said the right thing to do here is put out a statement that puts us on one side. Right. And we cannot do our job if, and, and I, I mean, I would have found it difficult to keep working for Braver Angels if we had not taken on that issue. Mm. Right. Uh, because like, how do you, if that's where people's hearts are and if that's what they're, uh, if that's the thing that is um, making them feel like they cannot be part of this country, mm-hmm. how are we supposed to not talk about it? Right. And, so, and, and yet we were not unified on that point, even within Braver Angels. Absolutely. I, yes, I have never gotten so much pressure not to, not to hold a debate. Not right. ever. Um, yeah. We had, uh, I had members emailing me, other people on staff, um, board members threatening to resign. We had funders threatening to pull out, like all kinds of things. And um, <laughs> I don't think you'd mind me saying this. Actually, the day before the debate, um, mm. uh, my boss called me and said, mm, I think this may be a mistake. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't do this. And I said, is that a suggestion or is that an order? Um, you put and, it to him pretty bluntly. <laughs> well, <laughs> and he said, it's a suggestion. <laughs> and I said, well, thank you for the suggestion. <laughs> and we went through with it and it was right. so important. It was so important that we did that mm. because, um, you know, I, one of my favorite pieces of feedback from that, and we had, you know, people uh, speaking, saying, uh, I am confident the election was stolen. Other people saying, um, you know, the claims of voter fraud are what facilitates voter suppression. Right. And all of that. Uh, and we had, um, it's an important point to emphasize because that debate was both about the question of, well, you know, voter fraud and issue, but also is voter suppression. Correct. Right. right? Well, and, and that's the thing is that those are actually both Mm. there. And Mm. the, uh, I sometimes think, and this is a, radical thing to say or perhaps mm-hmm. but i sometimes think that the jokes on us in the sense that um voter fraud and voter suppression are both big problems mm. and yet the the people who believe in one we have somehow set up a system where people who believe in one hate the people who believe in the other and vice mm-hmm. versa right. and so we can't get anywhere well yeah i mean and you did just make a controversial statement because you certainly will have people on both sides who say mm-hmm. that you know one of these things is real and therefore one is not like the other and to both sides the issue of course is yes is is problematic yes right right, mm-hmm. right. and so it was um i was so uh i i had inspired by the people who spoke up on both sides of that because mm-hmm. it included um speakers in that debate who did not think we should be debating this, mm. who thought it was unethical potentially for us mm. to be debating this at all. Right. And you may recall that we actually had to do a, a podcast where we basically, this mm-hmm. was so controversial that we basically had a, a staff conversation right. on air, mm-hmm. just hashing through why yep. uh, and talking to people who said we should not do this. Well, including what our, happens if our, we don't? Our, our good uh, friend, mutual friend and brilliant a uh, thinker and activist, Silas Kulkarni. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, who was vociferously opposed to uh, our even doing the debate, not just that he disagreed with the claim, but that we would even uh, mm-hmm. debate it. And yet showed up for that podcast to debate the issue with us on air as yeah. a member of Brave Angels yeah. leadership team and mm-hmm. then was a part of the debate. And then showed up at the debate and gave excellent arguments and debating uh, against the debate itself, which yes. is, you know, <laughs> the most. Somehow or other kind of makes him the quintessential brave ranger. Totally. Some, some oh my gosh. Subsets, it was know. so inspiring. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very much so. Right. We were lucky to have him. Uh, I mean, not that he's gone, but 
<laughs> ah, he's moved on to a different job. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Once a braver angel, always a braver absolutely, angel. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And one of my favorite out like things about that debate is that at the end of it, you literally, <laughs> you literally saw like him and David Iwinski, who sadly is no longer with us, um, dancing. David mm-hmm. Iwinski being the, I think the most outspoken, like the election was stolen person. Right. Mm-hmm. And they actually like conservative became, Trump supporter, oh, attorney, so international yeah. businessman, yeah. And our late friend. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And he and Silas became quite good friends as a function of that debate. That's right. Right. Um, and I guess the other thing to say about it is that even before that debate, I think they were very close friends who worked together very closely, I think, mm-hmm. within within Braver Angels. And of course, we have a number of notable friendships. That, Absolutely. Like that, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. And our trustworthy elections initiative comes from that. Um, right some of the outcomes of realizing that voter suppression and voter fraud could be addressed together. Mm, Um, But more to say about that another Mm. time. Uh, The thing that I was going to mention is just that the, um, I think that if we had not done that debate, we would not have kept our soul in the same way that if we hadn't debated defund the police, we would not Mm. have kept our soul Mm. as braver angels. And that uh, Silas to this day disagrees with me about this. Mm. Um, And uh, so I, um, you know, that's the, that's the struggle. But I, I just think that, um, you have to keep talking. Right. We have to keep communicating. Hmm. All the al- other alternatives are worse. Okay. Well, let's, let's take that as an opportunity to explore a bit more in sort of our closing minutes here. Um, your worldview, your, your philosophical uh, perspectives, because they are multifaceted <laughs> here. And, um, draw from draw from many many sources and of course you know i i have the 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 good fortune of sort of knowing you well enough and having had enough sort of interaction with you to sort of have a sense of sort of the, the the tapestry of your perspectives and how they sort of inform the the material the tangible work that that you do uh in this Space. But, you know, while you have been somebody who has been, who's been a public intellectual, really, and somebody who has sort of spoken, you know, publicly and interviewed uh, uh, and challenged uh, notable public figures from former FBI director James Comey to you know, my friend Heather Hying of intellectual dark web fame and, well, you know, uh, a good number of others, um, you've sort of popped in and out of the conversation at various various points. And so, you know, folks don't always have the opportunity to understand sort of what your cohesive kind of perspective is. Hmm. Um, So let's start here a little bit sort of with your particular brand of conservatism, right? Um, Because you are a conservative. You discovered your conservatism at Yale, as Mm -hmm. you recounted for us. You were conservative conservative at the New York Times. And so for a number of folks... (laughs) You know, that's a that's an asterisk. Yep. <laughs> sort of right off yep. right off the bat and so forth. And yet yours is a deeply considered conservatism. Mm-hmm. Can you take mm-hmm. a moment to just sort of explain what conservatism means to you? Oh, I'd love to. Thank you for asking that. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> people love to tell me that I'm not really a conservative, but right. or that except that like I don't think I'm a liberal and mm-hmm. I'm not a leftist. And I it's just that it's the only word that actually fits, so far as I can tell. Right. Um and it's because I believe in, uh, and just, I feel like it's involuntary, but I, first of all, I'm very oriented towards the sacred. Mm. And I think that, um, I, I don't know how to understand the world without the terms holy and, and mundane. And I don't know what it means, what it could mean to honor other people without like I need words like honor and sacred and um, spirit to, to make sense of the world around me. Um, So that's one thing is that I, 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 to me, that is as obvious as the color blue. Hmm. Um, Another thing is that I really believe that we have a lot to learn from the past, from the wisdom of the past and from the traditions that are handed down to us. And uh, incidentally, I would submit that, Traditions often um, encapsulate, they hold productive tensions. And so uh, I have a an, um, somewhat dim view of human nature. I think that 
human beings um, have a lot of evil in them. Mm. They also have good, I think, but uh, I don't, (laughs) um, as it became clear to me, even clearer when I worked in the intelligence community, the idea that like, we can just like let the world like run itself and let everybody else rise and um, say like, you know, hey, China, Russia, Iran, like you be powerful in your part of the country, uh, the world and expect everything to be fine. Mm. Like that's, that's a a fool's game, Mm. I think. And so I believe that, um, yeah, human nature has fallen. Uh, we have a lot to learn from the past. Mm. Um, another big thing, um, is that it's much easier to, uh, destroy things than it is to build them, Mm. particularly the most valuable things, which are organic. And so that I do actually mean that literally in the sense of the environment, but also, um, cultures and societies and, uh, people's understanding of who they are in Mm. context of their past. It's much easier to destroy that, those things than it is to build them. And, uh, so I generally get very nervous when people talk about, uh, building a brave new world on the ashes of the old one. Mm. Um, and this is a thing that, uh, you know, divides me from some folks on the right too, because I will never be a burn it down person Mm -hmm. ever. Um, I think that institutions restrain and refine human nature and, uh, help us be better than we otherwise would be. Um, and that they build character and the character has to be built. It isn't simply something that, um, that is. So that said, I think that we have, um, a lot of assets in the West. And Mm. I also think that we have a lot, there's reform that's needed. Note reform, not revolution. Mm. Um, and that, uh, one of the old traditions, the traditional lineages that we have forgotten is the parts of tradition and of our history that speak to feminine strength, Mm. not just masculine strength. Um, sometimes go ahead. Well, okay. So you just mm-hmm. you just uh, said a key word here, and if we can stretch a little bit, I do want to tie a couple of threads together. So you know, you have um, talked here about the importance of 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 tradition, of sanctity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it seems to me that you know, sort of, there's some some fabric of virtue in in your um, philosophy, and so you know, there are many people in these sort of heterodox. Uh, uh, sort of center in American intellectual and political life, sort of libertarians and and many libertarians and and many you know political conservatives who would identify themselves as classical uh, liberals. You hear mm-hmm. that term a lot these days. Uh, what you espouse strikes me as something of uh, classical conservatism. Correct. You know, folks who follow me will know that I tend to sympathize with that mm-hmm. philosophical overview as well. Uh, and it's not something that you hear given much voice to, you know, outside certain sort of, you know, relatively kind of rarefied spaces in the public conversation. I mean, David Brooks would, would be an example of someone from, from that way of thinking. Um, but uh, what is also interesting is you are a feminist. Mm-hmm. You're, you are self, uh, you are understood as a, as a feminist. And mm-hmm. I, I have, <laughs> forgive me, I have heard. Uh, people uh, say, and I, I could, I could think of an activist or two by name who tweeted uh-huh. out things like, um, "There is no such thing as a conservative feminist." Right, right. <laughs> this right, is right. an oxymoron. Yes. yes, is that an oxymoron? Absolutely uh, not. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, then no. why not? <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> one of my possible alternative life paths is one where I try to like just prove that wrong, right. because. Um, Because the truth is that in human history, there are traditions that um, articulate feminine strength in a way that is much more powerful than I I feel like a lot of people seem to believe that uh, either that the two options are either be a um, be the kind of feminist who uh, acquires masculine power, but is female, who um, is a somebody who rejects everything about the past and deconstructs it and is um, powerful in that way, rejects gender altogether, or you have to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, that those are your options. And that is not good enough. And it's also not, it's, it's not nobody who actually understands women and understands the nature of women could believe that those are the only options because there is something so uh, uniquely and powerfully strong in women that, um, 
that it it uh sure so our the western canon doesn't include it but mm. that doesn't mean it's not there and it mm. doesn't mean that it's not um a fundamental fundamental part of the human experience and uh and i you know i like i said i think tradition needs reform not revolution but it's um i believe in a uh uh, fairly traditional understanding of what gender is mm. in the sense that I believe that there is such, such a thing as gender. Mm. Um, but I think that we need a new expression of feminine strength that can rival masculine strength and yet be the other and different and um, uh, uniquely powerful thing that it is. Right. Well, so it's an interesting and unusual sort of combination of labels, right? Conservative feminists mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, and so it's an indicator of the fact that you may be one of those special folks who finds herself somewhat politically homeless, perhaps, you know, in the conventional sort of way of understanding things. But does that mean that you cannot find uh, empathy with folks that put it, let's just put it sort of bluntly here, sort of. On the MAGA right or on the BLM left, for instance, uh, the social justice left or sort of the nationalist right, because what struck me about the space that you hold, you know, in our in our organization, our community, our larger movement, is that from the unique sort of starting point of your own personal philosophy and experience, you seem to reach all the way down to the <laughs> bottom of people's of people's hearts in the way that you, you engage them. Across that space, and I've seen you win win genuine uh, human trust and friendship across that spectrum. Um, what allows you to do that uh, authentically? Mm-hmm. Um, are there things that you can sort of feel, I guess, and understand viscerally mm-hmm. in what motivates the sort of the concern and discontent of people from way out on those wings? Very much so. Mm. Very much so. I uh, so an important thing that is true about me that has for most of my life been an avocation. I never really thought it would be relevant to this work until recently is that, uh, I spent eight years working on a sexual violence hotline Mm. and, um, answering, you know, I've answered thousands of calls and over that time. And I, um, it just that and other sort of work, both personal and more theoretical I've done uh, mean I have an attunement to trauma and to what that means in people's lives and what it does um, in them, to them, um, to their relationships. And I, uh, I think there's a lot of trauma in our society and that um, the, uh, the people who are the most alienated, and I would consider people on both left and right pretty alienated, and frankly, for pretty good reasons. Like, mm. I, I think they have good reasons to be as angry, disgusted. Um, ultimately, I think it's the fundamental feeling is betrayed. Mm. I think they have good reasons to feel those things. And I uh, know what it's like to be betrayed, as we all do in some form. And, but, but mostly I just, I hear, I hear things to love in their voices, right? Like, and you can hear that the stories that they're telling about their people, their identity, who they are, and what they feel are ways of of interacting with pain often pain and hope um aspiration uh and and also saying, you know, I have dignity, and I deserved better than this, and i um I just think that <laughs> That actually, as strange as this sounds, we have a lot to learn from people who have gone through trauma and from those traumatic experiences. And that if we don't go into those, we will never be able to to really um, come back together. And so I uh, I have a heart for passionate people and for people who have been hurt. I think they're often the same people. Mm. I couldn't make it myself through some days if I didn't believe that there were people out there who would never give up on me. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same about those people. So then April, how does recognizing um the sort of lived experience, so to speak, you know, of 
of these traumas, mm-hmm. and that's a very key word here, mm-hmm. how, does, how does trauma, therefore, interact with your particular understanding of truth and reconciliation or what truth and reconciliation ought to mean? Mm. Thank you for asking. When I say truth and reconciliation, a lot of the truths that I think get overlooked are overlooked because they're really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, the human mind, part of what happens in, in the mind, uh, in the brain when trauma occurs is that the brain, because it, the uh, traumatic memories don't get encoded properly, uh, will sort of oscillate between, um, suppressing any recognition that an event has happened and having that intrude aggressively. Um, this is from, uh, the first chapter of my favorite book on trauma, which is by Judith Herman. It's called Trauma and Recovery. And the same thing happens in society, which is to say we we um, pretend things haven't happened, and then there are these outbursts of violent assertion that they have. But there's no container. There's nowhere for that that those assertions, that pain, to go. And what it tends to do is lead to backlash on the part of the people who feel accused, um, and then no one gets anywhere. Mm. And And the other thing that's true is that most major groups in America have stories that are based on traumas that they have experienced as a group. Um, And those stories are often constructed in such a way that that they can't, it's very hard to live together. And so I think that, but the, (laughs) the good news in all of this is that people can heal from almost anything from like amazing things. And so if we can, I, th- I believe that if we can, um, that there are ways for us to, to reconcile. I mean, trauma is fun. Trauma healing is fundamentally about reconciling inside yourself in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the community, with, you know, it's in some ways about healing relationship. It's about other things too, but, um, I think if we can do that inside ourselves, we can do it between one another too. So, and that American can do so. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think that we've got to have the courage to face those truths and the um and also the courage to try to reconcile, right? It's courage and it's grace and it's um faith is another thing. You've got to have faith that there is a light at the end of all of this. That there is hope. Because there is. Indeed. April Lawson, you are your mother's daughter. (laughs) No higher compliment. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for Uniting America. Thank you for listening to Uniting America. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating, review, or suggestions. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and tune in for more content. And learn more about the movement to depolarize America at braverangels.org.